This podcast episode is brought to you by Paleo Valley's Organic Extra Virgin Olive Oil. Now, we all know that many olive oils are cut with seed oils or that they are rancid, and so it's not always easiest to find a quality and properly sourced olive oil. Yes, in case you didn't know, many store bought olive oils are diluted or blended, compromising both taste and quality, and may even cause rancidity. I'm really glad that Paleo Valley's extra virgin olive oil remains pure and unadulterated, sourced from a single organic valley in Greece. Paleo Valley ensures freshness and nutrient content by packaging their olive oil in dark glass bottles. At a certain point, I stopped using extra virgin olive oil, but once our practice started working with people with chronic inflammatory response syndrome or SIRS, we started recommending it for the reduction of TGF beta 1. It is an immune system marker that shows inflammation both for COVID 19, SIRS, and actually many other illnesses. So if your TGF beta 1 is high, you may want to try incorporating a little bit of extra virgin olive oil. Make sure to check it out. It comes in a two pack package. And remember, All Paleo Valley products are guaranteed with a money back guarantee. Go to paleovalley.com slash nwj to get 15% off your order. Thanks for supporting companies that support this podcast. Hey guys, it's Judy from Nutrition with Judy. Thanks for joining me today. While you're here, please make sure to like and subscribe. If you're listening to this on podcast, please make sure to leave a review as this allows my content to get in front of more people. And thank you for that. My name is Judy Cho and I'm board certified in holistic nutrition. And I have a private practice where we focus on root cause healing. And that oftentimes starts with the carnivore cures all meat elimination diet. Today, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Tro. He has a Nationwide telemedicine clinic, and he's also the co host of the Low Carb MD podcast. I really wanted Dr. Tro on because he knows a lot of the science, he publishes a lot of recent papers, but more than that, he sees a lot of patients one on one and also then understands the journey of getting to better health. Dr. Tro has his own health journey where he was 350 pounds. And now is at a more stable weight. He talks through a lot of the journey and how he focuses on food addiction, obesity, and diabetes. He really just tries to meet the patients where they are and really give personalized care and wants to really change the medical system to focus on individualized care. We talk a lot about this nuance when we talk about cholesterol and LDL and if statins are even necessary. We also talk a lot about food addiction and how to really support people that are struggling with food addiction and not just about finding the right diet and nutrition. There's a lot of heartfelt conversation in this talk where Dr. Tro is a very genuine person. Dr. Tro has a telemedicine practice that dramatically improves lives by combining individualized, compassionate care with state of the art biometric remote monitoring. Dr. Tro is a board certified internal medicine and obesity medicine physician. He received his medical degree from Toro Medical College and completed his internal medicine residency in the Yale New Haven Health System at Greenwich Hospital. Dr. Tro has also published research on topics of aclasia, binge eating disorder, food addiction, and severe hypertriglyceridemia. Dr. Tro focuses on diabetes, obesity, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, metabolic syndrome, and PCOS. His approach begins with intensive lifestyle changes, including diet, exercise, improved sleep, hygiene, as well as stress management and mental health. 
In this talk with Dr. Tro Kalajian, you will hear a lot of his genuine conversations. He talks about the skepticism of supplements and even some of the organ supplements. We talk through some of that folate, homocysteine, and lots of other things that will help support you on this carnivorous journey. Let's get right into the interview. Hi, Dr. Tro. Thank you so much for joining me today. We've been talking a little bit offline, but I'm really excited to just dig into the conversation of metabolic health and lots of other things. For the people that are watching, if you can introduce yourself. Hey, so my name is Dr. Tro Kalajian. I am a board-certified internal medicine doctor. I'm also board-certified in obesity medicine. I'm a metabolic health practitioner. I'm on the board of directors of the Society of Metabolic Health Practitioners, and I have a nationwide telemedicine practice that focuses on food first and reversing particularly obesity and type 2 diabetes. We are a metabolic health clinic that leverages you know, remote monitoring, frequent lab work, and health coaching, personal training, all so that we can help people uh, reverse their disease and become healthier and happier. I was previously 350 pounds. And when my wife challenged me to uh, approach nutrition and obesity the way that I do medicine, which is read everything, don't believe anybody, and verify myself, when she asked me to do the same approach that I would with any drug or any other disease that I was taught, it sparked a fire in me to learn about nutrition. I read everything I could read, uh, probably, and I, this is not an overstatement, I want to say 3,000 primary articles and three textbooks on obesity, probably four now, four textbooks now, uh, at least two to 300 diet books, because I wanted to just know everybody's opinion, you know, all the way from one end of the spectrum to the other. And what I found was not that it was outright lies. It, it certainly seems it's lies, but it's, it's convenient half-truths that don't address problems. That is modern nutrition and modern medicine. It's a lot of convenient half- Anyway, so I went low-carb. I have never had a steak, really. I don't think I ever cooked a steak once in my life. Wow. Until I was roughly 31 years old, so seven, eight years ago. Um, I was not a big meat eater. I was vegan for huge stints of my life as a kid. Uh, I battled between kind of, uh, uh, you know, binge eating, anorexia, and uh, as a kid, and veganism. So I really had no skin in the game. I was like a doctor trying to un, can I curse? Sure. <laughs> un my health. Right. That was literally just a 350 pound doctor whose wife was like, you're smart. Go figure this out. And I wanted to unlock my health. That's what I was. And I had no tribe, nothing. It was like, let me just go see the interventional trials head to head. If this was a drug for pneumonia, I'd want to see which antibiotic head to head worked better. And you go to the trials and it's like, wait a second, what? Like low carbs better. And then you just step into the data further and further and further. And you're like, holy crap, it's all a freaking house of lies, a house of cards. So that's me. You know, that was me eight years ago, a 350 pound board certified doctor who then un my health, excuse my language. And I've been passionate on 
having the practice I wish I had, right? So, and we talked about this off the air, you know, we have, you know, several doctors now, all metabolic health certified, all obesity medicine certified. You know, we have health coaches, three health coaches, two personal trainers. You know, we're, we're a mini team out here, a team of 10, uh, who just, our mission is very clear, reverse diabetes, reverse obesity, address food addiction, and get people healthy. Well, thank you for that story. And I have a few questions. So your first, the telemedicine, does that mean that um, anyone that lives in the United States that has insurance, would they be able to see you and get support with you and your team? So that's a good question. Thanks for asking. So here's the thing. In medicine, right, when you sign a contract with an insurance company, right, so you have an insurance contract, you sign with them to uh, agree to do care at a discounted rate. So like, for example, we spend an hour and a half at our first visit, our first medical visit. Before you have your first medical visit, you've met with our onboarding team for 30 minutes. You've met with a health coach for an hour and a half before you ever see a doctor. Now, when you sign a contract with an insurance company, they're like, no, 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 no. We are not going to pay you for all of that. And that one and a half hour visit, we're going to give you 17 bucks, right? So wow. I have not signed any contracts. And the way docs go around that is they see patients in five minutes and they do unnecessary tests like EKGs and they order, they just do unnecessary things and bring people back unnecessarily. That's how most of medicine deals with it, right? So I made a conscious effort not to sign any contracts with any insurance company because I don't want to compromise my care. And so we bill out of network, which means you can have insurance, but if you're out of network, we can send our bills to your insurance company. So it's like an out of network thing. So yes, you can be anywhere in the United States and you can see our practice, we're out of network. We haven't signed any contracts with any insurance companies. Well, that's still good that you are part of the out of network because that's one of the biggest questions I get is, do you know a doctor in X state that supports a low carb diet? And there's not a lot of people that I can just call out. But if you meet with, I mean, people all over the US, that's a, that's a good option. So thank you for that. And then in terms of your vegan stint, as you were gaining weight, did you ever wonder why you were gaining weight? Um, you know, we think of veganism and plant-based as so healthy, but do you think there was a reason why maybe you were gaining weight? Did you ever think it was the diet? Well, so I, I think it's important. I actually, you know, lost weight with, I should say, anorexia and ring, right? So, and then that turned into veganism and running because that's what healthy is when you're 15 to 20. Right. So, but it was not sustainable. My concept of nutrition at the time was off. I was a lifelong, you know, chubby person, you know, so veganism was what was in my mind healthy at the time. It left me hungry. It left me, I didn't really have the wherewithal to figure out actually how to manage my appetite, which is the driver of my obesity. You know, I have a appetite that's, you know, through the roof and so it, it was really destined to fail. It doesn't matter how much, you know, broccoli I chew, I'm not going to be satiated. So it, it was more of like a, I want to say, I, I, I'm very open about the fact that when I was young, I had, I think I had an eating disorder. 
you know, there was a time where I, I didn't eat uh, for, for three or four weeks. Uh, and then I did basically plant-based eating for over a year. It definitely affected my mood, my mental health. I think ultimately what caused me to gain weight is I have a insane ability to eat. I mean, even at a young age, you know, I was driven to eat. And even to now, like my appetite is through the roof. And so I think the right fit for me, looking back at my life, was a diet that managed my appetite. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, then that's, that's true for most people who yo-yo diet. They need a way to manage hunger and cravings. And most diets don't do that well. Most like, you know, Mediterranean diet. It's a very novel, you know, interesting, you know, buzz, you know, word framework. It sounds healthy, this Mediterranean diet. You know, plant-based sounds like such a like clean thing, like, you know, but ultimately, can you manage your hunger? Does it nourish you? Does it reverse metabolic disease? And does it support your brain, body, bones, and hormonal health? Um, so I was destined to fail on veganism. And you mentioned in your practice that one of your missions or three of the missions is to end food addiction, obesity, and blood sugar dysregulation or diabetes. I thought it was interesting that you had food addiction as part of that because most medical doctors will you know, bring up all the health implications, but not the actual food addiction side. Is it because of your insatiable hunger, your past possible eating disorder, that that's why you are also focusing on eating disorder or I'm sorry, uh, food addictions. Was it your patients? What is it with food addictions? Yeah. Uh, I'll tell you 100% of the people walking into my clinic, 100% of people, if you screen them with the DSM five, mm. right, which is a uh, catalog of, of mental health. If you screen them for substance abuse and focus on food, right. They have like 11 pillars, right. 99% okay. will have a serious you know, relationship issue with food. Let's put it that way. So whether they're finding me because I talk about these points and I'm open about my vulnerabilities, that could very well be true. I think when we look at obesity and you screen for food addiction and binge eating, like in general, mm -hmm. it's somewhere between one third to one half of obesity may have concurrent kind of abuse, substance abuse issues or food addiction or addictive eating or binge eating, right? And um, I think that because I'm so open about my own struggles that could be those people are finding me. Um, I think most people have yo-yo dieted, right. right? Most people have yo-yo dieted and you probably see people who've yo-yo dieted even on low carb. There's more to it than nutrition, right? And you know, right away, if somebody, you can tell within about 10 minutes or a good history, if somebody needs something more than nutrition, right? Right. Some people like page four is fine. Like just go eat meat and salt and see me in like a week is fine for some people, right? But you'll know right away people who have an issue with a relationship to food, you know, do they, you know, have this desire to cut down, right? Do they get agitated when people tell them to cut down? Do they feel, you know, if somebody says maybe you shouldn't eat that, do you get pissed off, right? Well, if you do and you really want to desperately lose weight, like I did when I was 350 pounds and why would you get pissed off? Why were your why would your emotions be, you know, why would you be ecstatic for somebody to be like, don't eat that? You'd be like, yes, of course I shouldn't eat that, right? But yet there's an emotional barrier there, right? When we tell people maybe you shouldn't eat that. And if there's that emotional barrier, 
hey, usually it signifies there's something more to look into than nutrition. Or another one is guilt and shame. If you're, you know, you want to get healthy and you lose control and then you feel really guilty and shameful, well, this means that you're getting a lot of psychological distress from the way you're eating, right? And usually that's uh, hand in hand with an issue with uh, behavioral and kind of psychological, emotional issue with food that needs to be evaluated. Um, So yeah, I I don't know why, but I suspect it's partly because people don't talk about this, you know? Uh, It's not something that, so I don't know why is it our mission? Because yeah, certainly I've lived it and every single one of my patients who, you know, page four or the Atkins book or, you know, the carnivore book didn't work for, you know, then... Who's helping them? Hey guys, just to let you know, my Carnivore Cure book is back in stock. For nine months, it was out of print and used prices were up to $300. Make sure to get your copy today that has over 200 colored tables and graphics and over 400 pages of meaty goodness. We have a limited supply, so get your copy today on Amazon.com. And if you can leave a review, I'd be super grateful. Right. And I struggled with an eating disorder for most of my life. And I think it got so bad at one point that I just landed in the mental hospital. And so I understand the drive for food and then compensating and then turning to food for every single type of emotion. So I I fully get that too. And I see a lot of people that have not acknowledged that they have a food addiction or imbalance or just coping and turning and celebrating with foods. And sometimes it takes that bit of education for them to start really healing because they just think, no, all I need is the perfect diet. And once I know exactly what macros, what types of foods to eat, then I will heal in your practice. How have you helped some of these people? Maybe some of them don't know that they have a imbalanced relationship with food. Maybe some of them do. What are some of the steps that in your practice that you help these people that are suffering from something more than just, I don't know the right diet and how to eat. So it, it's it's kind of multimodal. One is okay. we educate on this, right? Mm-hmm. So we're actively, you know, our outward messaging is, you know, that this is something we deal with, right? So they know when they come here that they're dealing with a team that has some expertise in this. I think the second thing is also asynchronous education, which is a fancy way of saying, like, give people a curriculum to follow that doesn't rely on you, right? So right? We put a lot out there. We have a whole app that they can, you can just go get it and start watching videos. Like you don't need me to start getting educated, right? You may need me to explore and give you insight, right? Like nothing replaces insight, but you can start to like get educated on this and empowered, you know? And then I think biofeedback is really important because you have to understand when it comes to eating, just like urinating, defecating, breathing, like your brain doesn't want to think about it, right? So so if you have a relationship to food and it causes psychological distress, a relationship to food that's off, and it causes psychological distress and negative emotions, right. and your brain doesn't want to think about it, like you don't want to think about like the almonds you snacked on as you pass by a plate of almonds. Like you don't want, you want to think about the, you know, the hard boiled eggs that were on the, you know, thing and you just grabbed the one and left the house. Like Eating is subconscious. We don't stop and think about every time we poop. We don't stop and think about every time we pee. We don't take, you know, we're not cognizant of how many breaths we're taking in and out. 
So eating wants to be subconscious, meaning like it doesn't want any active involvement. Sure. It wants to go in like the backseat. So, you know, how do you take eating and rip it out of subconscious, right? You want to educate about it, empower people to understand what is the language of hunger and cravings and eating and how is it that it's modulated? How can you decrease it, increase it? What are the different types of hungers, right? So education is one asynchronous education, particularly, right? They shouldn't have to wait for Judy and Tro to get the wisdom that they need, right? And then, right. then the other part is the biofeedback. So, you know, how is it that we can kind of alert people to things that their subconscious doesn't want to think about? You know, a ketone meter is a great biofeedback tool. A CGM is a great biofeedback tool. Uh, particularly for processed carbohydrate consumption, right? So um, it's just a way to kind of, you know, uh, you know, track without having to think about it, right? Um, you know, without having the like mental anguish of like stopping and tracking everything you eat, like, okay, like there's something happened on your blood sugar reading, what happened? And then it's like, oh yeah, I did this thing. So now you can analyze kind of each quote unquote, you know, difficulty and then, just implement a plan, right? It's not like it's, you know, it, how do you address somebody's cravings for food, feelings of deprivation, right? How do you, how do you address these things, right? It's, you can't always just be, you know, eat some raw liver. Like it has to be, okay, you have a problem with pizza. Okay. I love pizza. I'm a big pizza binger. How can we get you to your ideal? Like right. if pizza is where you're at and raw liver is the ideal, Right? I'm not saying that's an ideal. How do we walk somebody to a, you know, something that's actually sustainable? Well, okay, is taking the sauce and cheese off something reasonable for you? Maybe, maybe not. Is getting a keto crust, you know, uh, blaze pizza something that's reasonable for you? Is it not? You know, and everybody could be their own judge of what they can do on their way to their ideal. Sure. And some people, it's just super easy. Like, so the bottom line is, is asynchronous, edu you know, education, biofeedback, right? Frequent and real time monitoring, right? So being able to get input from your medical team in real time, being able to get health coaching input in real time, meaning like I ate something I wasn't proud about. What would you guys have done? Like that immediate, like not allowing the shame and guilt cycle to control somebody's lifestyle and just being able to process improve. And that takes trust and rapport too, right? That takes knowing that you have a team that's not going to elicit that shame guilt response and right. just say, well, you're, you should be doing better. You know, like that's not helpful telling anybody you should be doing better. Right. You know, it's okay. Well, how, you know, what are the root causes here? What's the patterns that keep recurring? What's the next best step for you? Like, can you, maybe you can go to the ideal. Maybe that, you know, that late night binging, that's really tough for you you can go to pork rinds and that's not a problem or, or eggs with a little bit of salt, right? Like hard boiled eggs that are just super easy, convenient and available for you. That works late night, you know, but maybe like you're like me, you're a chocolate binger. And you know, when you're craving chocolate, you're not going to eat raw liver and eggs and salt, you know? So how do you figure out how to get people to the next step? So I think patient empowerment is the key. Right. right. Like making them aware of what they're up against. Right. What is the drive to eat? What is addictive eating? What is food addiction? What is what is all this? How does nutrition affect that? Get them out of hunger, manage their cravings, manage their feelings of deprivation, 
manage social situations and manage, you know, their emotions, you know, make sure that they, they know how to manage their emotions, whether it's elation or whether it's, you know, depression or anxiety, right? So learn to cope without food. So you do these like five or six things and you're good. But I mean, those are really hard <laughs> things, as you know, right, right. to do. Um, but asynchronous education, real-time feedback and real-time availability, you know, biofeedback and biomonitoring, you know, supportive team, community, you know, the opposite of addiction is, is connection, you know, so connecting in real time is so critical. These are the things, meetings, we have tons of meetings in our practice. Okay. Complicated question. Sorry. No, no, it's good. I, I think it is a, a bunch of things. It's learning, but it's also seeing that biofeedback from CGMs, getting the support, understanding the emotions you're going through and having someone be able to speak to it and help you to understand that's what I'm feeling. That's what shame is. That's why I end up turning to more food. And then also the big key you're talking about is making it very individualized. Somebody may be a moderator where they can just maybe reduce one slice of pizza where some other person cannot do any pizza. So I think a lot of that makes sense. And it is a very difficult topic and it requires so much for that healing. And I think that's why I mean, honestly speaking, I know that my podcast, if I were to put out only specific carnivore content, it does relatively well. Whereas if I put out content about getting to know yourself or learning about eating disorders or just food addiction or, you know, all the other stuff about trauma and mental health, people don't want to listen to it as much because it's the hard work that is not just here are the foods to eat. Here's how much exercise you need to be done. And here's all the inner work that you need to do. And people are like, no, no, that's not me or that I'm not ready to look at it yet. So I, I totally get that fully. Yeah. Well, so you got a quick litmus test. If you want to know if you should focus on nutrition versus behavior, you know, there's a questionnaire in alcoholism, right? In alcohol dependence, I shouldn't say alcoholism, in alcohol dependence called the cage questionnaire. Mm -hmm. Super easy. Do you want to cut down? Do you get agitated and annoyed when somebody tells you to cut down? Do you feel guilty, shameful, you know, when you use that substance? And do you sometimes lose control and does it affect you psychologically? Do you have psychological distress from it, right? Uh, and do you feel compelled to have that substance? If you answered yes to two or three of those, like nutrition is not going to help you. Right. You know, I mean, it'll help you, but it's like, it's not, you need more. Agreed. I mean, it's Agreed. like the quickest, dirtiest thing. And I think that's the thing. How do you tell people, how do you quickly communicate your issue is not nutrition? You know, like, yeah, there's all these nutritional stuff, but like your issue is not nutrition. People know, people know I've wanted to lose weight my whole life. You hear that? I have yo-yo dieted my whole life. You hear that? I mean, your ears should be open. Like, wait a second. There may be more to this than just nutrition. Um, if you're, you know, feeling the intense shame, guilt, psychological distress, meaning like, I don't want to go here. I don't want to hear what they have to say. I don't want to be seen eating. I don't want to, you know, I'm going to sneak the wrappers, any of that stuff. You know, it's like, get help, get help. You know, you wouldn't go to, if you had a flat tire and somebody told you put more points of air in your tire than you let out, you know, you'd realize really quickly that's not the help you need. So, and if you're somebody who's food addicted and vulnerable, right, you have to be empowered to know that count your calories or count your carbs. It's not really the advice you need. Agreed. I, I do think that if you remove processed carbs, that will help some so that you don't feel the irritability from blood sugar dysregulation and insulin. 
But generally speaking, yes, I agree. I think that's why most people know that eating or going to a fast food restaurant is not ideal, yet people still go. So I do think there's a large component that just has to do with something beyond just nutrition. We It's not just that we don't know the right things to eat, but there's something a lot deeper that we've been talking about. I want to switch a little bit to obesity. So I know two of the other things you really want to focus on healing is um, obesity and diabetes. What do you think is, I mean, beyond this food addiction component, which I know is a big part of it, what else do you think is driving obesity and um, diabetes in many of your patients? And then what do you use to support them? I mean, I think the underlying cause is an intense drive to eat in an environment. So an an inability to manage hunger and cravings in an environment with addictive food, right? I, I, I think that that's like the underlying issue. Now, I think that there are many other causal factors. I think mitochondrial dysregulation, for example, is a causal factor. If your mitochondria sucks, like you're going to have hypoglycemia and hypertriglyceridemia. If you have fat that's basically not functioning and inflamed, you know, you're going to have high blood sugars, right? And you're going to have high triglycerides. Right. I think if you have damaged your pancreas or your pancreas is just burnt from years of processed food, you know, that's another, you know, regulator. And I think ultimately you have to understand the genetic underpinning, which is, you know, eat, eat more. Like the language of our brain is not, you know, it's kind of like if you saw money, you'd, you'd just go after the money, right? You pick it up. If you saw a hundred dollar bill, you pick it up. Our brains are like that with food. Right. Right. So, and that's the language. And if you understand that language, you can, you know, figure out, I think, know what it is you're up against, which is, you know, we have a switch to eat that we can't necessarily turn off at our whim. So if you ask me the cause of obesity, I mean, I think it's, you know, it's a lot of things. I think that if you take modern processed food, you, you won't eliminate it, but you'll significantly improve it. I think it also takes a little bit of insight and wisdom. You know, there's no way to win in our modern environment. That sounds dark and hard, but like it is a lifelong battle. You know, it is a lifelong battle. And I know it sucks and people don't want to hear that, but you're not getting rid of birthday parties. You're not getting rid of billboards. You're not getting rid of commercials. You're not getting rid of your grandma who makes her, you know, traditional dish. And you're not going to get away from our societal structure to come together to eat. So you are going to be faced with emotional and food cues, emotional cues, stress cues, food cues. And this is it. It's our world. So now, I mean, you can go deeper into it. You know, sarcopenia, the fact that we're, you know, not, we're fairly sedentary and and, uh, we don't have the muscle mass that we probably historically had. Sure. Uh, I think that all of this plays a role. I mean, it's the food. It's the food. I mean, if you look at, um, there was a study on raccoons, right? And I talk a lot about this study on raccoons. They found that raccoons that are in the cities, they are obese, diabetic, arthritic, right? And the ones that are in the suburbs are pre-diabetic, overweight, and a little bit of arthritis. And the ones that are in the country have none of them, right? right? So, you know, I don't think that like, you know, um, I don't think the commercials are affecting those raccoons. I don't think the billboards are affecting those raccoons. I don't think birthday parties are affecting those raccoons. I think it's just the food. Right. You know, and, and I think the hit 
the inflammatory, so like the worst hit is like the double hit of inflammation, right? Mitochondrial dysfunction and processed carbs, right? Like it's like if you give one of my patients, you know, soybean oil and sugar, their blood sugars will be far worse than either of the two alone. Right, right. You know, it's probably like a dyssynergy, but it's tough. I mean, I can't explain that. I mean, we're here, colleagues, like talking about this stuff, but basically the answer is modern processed food, cheap industrial food. Right. And which is oftentimes very poor in nutrition and it causes you to just store all of it as fat and then you get hungry again and then it makes you want to go and get more food. Do you use carnivore as a tool for a lot of your patients? Yeah. I mean, I mean, look, we're a meat center. I think the best way to describe us is somewhere between the spectrum of, look, we've had plant-based. So I really should say uh, we're somewhat agnostic, but like this is my standard nutritional advice, meat, fish, chicken, eggs, Greek yogurt, green leafy vegetables, low carb fruit, you know, like berries. This is for obesity and diabetes, right? So would I use an elimination diet? Several times. You know, if that is that what you mean by carnivore, like yes. uh, an elimination diet? Yes. So, well, some people will use an um, carnivores, and that's particularly me. But I like to reset the gut, and then obviously, if you eat more of a just a elimination diet, less noise with less different plant foods, possibly having anti nutrients, toxins, etc. And then just some people will stay on a carnivore diet because they just feel best. But then some people will then add back, you know, some of the things that you just mentioned. But when we think about food addiction, sometimes I've also seen just, I guess, just by happenstance that people that have food addictions, when they say nothing else is on the table, but meat, they seem to also thrive with just that because carbs are no longer a, okay, you can only have 20 grams of carbs a day compared to you can have zero grams. So there's no more mental anguish of the, which carbs should I eat today? If that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, uh, look. I think you give the brain any wiggle room and it'll grow, you know, like you should, you should expect that any amount of reward you give your brain, it'll seek out more. It's true. Unless you have severe depression, right. Or, you know, like you're severely anxious or something like that. Your brain will like, it's just like money. If you found a hundred dollar bill, would you say no? So I think everybody has a certain amount of decision fatigue that they can put up with, right? Like some people want to live without that decision fatigue and they feel good, you know, on a very strict diet. Like I know what that feels like. It's so simple to just make meat. And some people have like true, you know, allergies that would have otherwise been undiagnosable, right? Without doing elimination. So I think... People deserve to try it. I I can tell you, I've seen people go carnivore and, you know, lifelong diarrhea, lifelong diarrhea, like life changing, you know, life altering diarrhea just resolve. Can I explain it? No, you know, I can't explain it. I mean, clearly her gut, you know, really shifted her gut microbiome shifted. Did she have colitis by any chance? Was it colitis? No, Um, No, no, she did not have colitis. Couldn't explain it. I mean, ran... You know, calprotectin, you know, fecal leukocytes, right. uh, you know, uh, was diagnosed with IBS. You know, IBS is like this BS diagnosis. Term, right? uh, yeah. So do we use carnivore diets? Yes. What's the longest I've gone? I don't know, like two and a half months, three months. You know, pretty I just, good. I don't have any perceivable issue other than a desire to eat other foods, you know. And when I make it plain, 
I don't want to eat as much. You know? <laughs> and, and if you look at most, you know, data in terms of like, if you add variety, so the more variety you add, the more likely you are to eat more. Right. right? right. So like, you know, go back to money. If you have tons of money in gold and diamonds, are you likely to take more? Or if it's, you know, just stacks of money, like, I, you know what I mean? Like, it's, you know, your brain is going to go after more if you present it with more. So there's something about sort of like a plain diet and there's something about limiting, I think, processed fats and the sweet taste. And there's a lot of like, you know, the sweet taste alone will drive me to eat. If you take away the sweet taste, I probably eat half as much as I normally eat. Yeah, I, I get that fully. It took me a long time to include back some sweet occasionally. And generally speaking, I don't have it, but it took what me a long time. Do do? I'm sorry? What sweets do you do? I'm just curious. Um, I guess I don't really eat sweets. If anything, it's like sweetener. So keto uh, sweetener. So if someone, for example, if we go to KetoCon and we have extra keto sweets, occasionally I'll just try it. That's my um, desire to see, have I really healed from my eating disorder or have I used a great bandaid like the carnivore diet where basically I live in this bubble and as long as I don't get out of it, then I'm healed. So I purposely try to occasionally eat leafy greens or I will add some carbs. I don't really like fruits in general, so that's not my thing. But if I eat a little bit of sugar-free, I don't know, ice cream or keto treats, um, it doesn't trigger me. Whereas when I first started carnivore, if I had sugar-free gum or even diet soda, that would trigger me to eventually go on keto treats and then full-on binges to purges and all of that. But after three years of really strict all meat carnivore and not even using seasonings, herbs, anything, I have healed so much that now if I have some occasionally, well, one, it tastes super sweet, but now I can dabble in, um, I've even tried real ice cream, just Haagen-Dazs, a scoop and then, or a spoonful. And, and I just kind of move on with my life, but it took me a long time to get here. I think certainly psychology, microbiome, you know, ability to recover, not to, to be in control of that decision, I think is also critical. And the headspace you're in, it sounds like you're in a good place. No, thank you. I mean, I do think the microbiome, so I focus on gut health too, but when I first started, I, I used to take laxatives every day for a decade. So I was super unhealthy, used behavior. So if I ate too much, the way that I didn't hold it on my body was I'd purge, I'd exercise, I'd fast, or I wouldn't eat. And so there was a lot of stuff going on in my microbiome. I was also plant-based. And so whenever I had a little taste of sweet, it would trigger me to want to binge. And when I just did the all or nothing and went all meat, it took a while. And there was a lot of days where it was really, really difficult. But I also did like probiotics and gut health, like digestive enzymes, hydrochloric acid. And as I think I healed my gut and did therapy, got closer to God. So a lot of other things. But then that, I guess, hold on me with sugar wasn't as hard. Now, there are days if I do try it, I mean, I've never ate a full piece of cake yet still. Like that's, I don't think I'll ever do that, but I can definitely have a little treat and it doesn't trigger me like it used to. And so I think everyone can get there because, I mean, I was in intensive outpatient care for eating disorders, uh, just really, really sick. And so I get that pull that food has, and it's just this. I, I think it's a mix of the microbiome, uh, mental health, working on any past traumas, and then just cleaning out the microbiome is really key. Yeah, I think there's a lot we don't understand. I, yeah. I, I wouldn't be surprised to see microbiome much more important in like 
the extremes of diet. So right. like the microbiome changes in a strictly kind of whole food plant-based diet yeah. versus, you know, I actually think if there is health, it's probably the extremes. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at the diets that lead to most weight loss, it's, it's not like the Weight Watchers and counting and, you know, like these little zone diet, like that are pretty much, I, I don't know, I'd say, but it's, it's probably the extremes of diet, like less than five grams of carbohydrates or less than five grams of fat. Right. You know, I think the microbiome is a lot more underappreciated. The problem is, is everybody's already tried to profit off it with their probiotics and prebiotics. But there's so much science there that's so interesting. And, and, you know, because we don't know how to leverage it, it kind of seems like foo-foo and voodoo. But I think it holds the key to a lot more than we want to know. I agree. I, I think that because the gut bugs talk and communicate with your brain and it releases neurotransmitters and hormones, but I, I do agree with you. I think in general, there are there will be a study on a specific strain and they'll go, oh, so ac- acromensia, that there we go. So acromensia, that that has been shown to if you have too low, then that's what's causing obesity. So here's a supplement then that will increase your acromensia. And I just don't think our body is that simple. I, I think if maybe if you take a general probiotic, maybe and just for a short bit, if you need it, if you took antibiotics. But I do, I do agree with you. I think there's a lot of that in the supplement space of here's a study, here's my backing. So therefore you need this supplement. But the, uh, the other end of acromancy as an example is too much has also been shown to cause multiple sclerosis or be associated with MS. Yeah. So it's, I I mean, I think, I, I think it's a predatory just supplements in general, like are pretty, you know, I'm a, I've turned around on supplements, but in general, you know, when it comes to prebiotics, there's been no evidence for effect on obesity which is sad because, you know, 100% of the, I think it's kind of like vitamin D. Like if you have terrible metabolic syndrome, you can supplement all the vitamin D you want. It's not going to go anywhere. Right. So, you know, taking a, like a prebiotic or probiotic and, you know, eating a standard diet, it's just not going to work. Agreed. Agreed. You know, so the problem is, is, is people, you have to get them to understand that it could very well be that certain bacteria have very specific effects. We know that, for example, the seizure protections from the microbiome, and and we know that the migraine benefits also come from the microbiome. We know that spreading Tanaka, the the Olympic weightlifter, when you take the stool and implant it into mice, they become Olympic weightlifting mice. I mean, it's kind of crazy. When you take Quashicor, which is like severe protein malnutrition, if you guys know those old uh, when they take those third world countries and you see those kids with the big bellies and swollen legs, right. when you take their microbiome and inject it into mice, the mice get quashicor. Wow. So a lot of what we know about microbiome, I mean, it's so potently powerful. If you have C. diff and you are you get a transplant of healthy stool, you will then clear C. diff right. most quickly. So the problem is, is the supplement industry is trying to take advantage of this amazing data before we can standardize it or make it useful, you know, clinically useful. I, I think it's all of the wellness space. Honestly, I think it's beyond just supplements, but I agree. I fully agree with you. Yeah, we were talking about before we came on, I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about it, but I, you know, every single 
patient of mine who's been on an organ supplement and I have no, I wish they would work. I want to love the organ supplements. I want to love them, you know, ancestral and, and uh, whatever else, you know, the, the desiccated organs. When I've actually checked the folate levels of my patients, they've been low. And then when we switch to a conventional third-party tested consumer lab or lab door, when it's been tested by third parties, we give them those folate supplements, their folate levels look great and their homocysteines come down. Right. So I think this, I don't, I don't think anybody, I, I'm certain it's desiccated liver and I, I actually, I'm not certain, but I, I don't believe that anybody would do anything different, but I don't know what's going on because my patients aren't getting better. So I know that I think it takes six desiccated pills um, to be equal to one ounce of liver. And then one ounce of liver, I can't recall how much folate it has, but I don't know if it always translates. I have also seen very similar things. I think more than half of my clients will be taking some type of desiccated organ supplement because they hear that you need liver on a carnivore diet. And then I will check their folate levels or their homocysteine. And oftentimes their homocysteine is high, meaning that they probably need methylated Bs which then I put them on one that's a pretty clean version. And just in a month or two, their homocysteine, maybe it was at a 15 and now it's at a seven or eight. And so that's usually the, the thing that will support them. And that is far cheaper than taking these supplements. Cause I, I mean, I don't even know how much is in one glass jar or plastic bottle, but you need to take six to even equal to possibly one ounce. And then that doesn't even consider all the other nutrients that might be in excess, such as copper and vitamin E? We, so our approach to MTHFR, we just do the genetic testing often, okay. but we'll supplement with a third-party, you know, rated supplement. Okay. And then we'll reassess if the homocysteine and folate and B12 budge. Mm. If with supplementation, they don't budge, you know, then we'll usually do the genetic testing for MTHFR. If they have genetic testing and, and traditional supplementation hasn't budged their homocysteine and, and folate levels, then we'll usually have them pay for the more expensive, uh, you know, methylated. I, and it's I, a prescription I, brand? So yeah, it's not, okay. There's one prescription methylated folate. I'm just like conspiratorial. I'm like, if I can't third party verify, I'm like, I don't want to use it, you know? Sure, sure. I so don't. I'm, that's just my nature. I want to believe everybody has the <laughs> best supplement, but like, I just have been in this field too long to trust anybody. You know? It's fair. I think it's fully um, fair. If I could have my own like spectroscopy lab, <laughs> I probably would test every single one. We rely on consumer lab and lab. Okay. And then I try to go prescription because at least with GMP, like there's the threat of a FDA, you know, manufacturing right. audit. Anyway. There's a there's a practitioner grade um, supplement. I I learned of it in my school, so that's where that's one of the reasons I use it. And they're um, practitioner grade, so meaning that you can't just buy it on Amazon. I don't think at least, but they just got that GMP certification, or I think they also got like an ISO. But they're very strict in that too. But I I've, I'm the same as you. Like I've called the lab many times and asked, like, how do you test for these things? How do you know there's no lead, or how do you know there's no heavy metals, or something else? Because the truth is that a lot of the supplements are not regulated by the FDA. So I think there was recently, there was some type of protein supplement that would help you get jacked. 
But one of the reasons was they were adding, I think, some type of steroid to it. And then they got caught for putting that in. And that's so scary if you think about it. So I totally get it. Well, like, so on this topic, so if you look at proteins, you know, most proteins that are chocolate, for example, have likely illegal amounts of lead and cadmium, okay, okay? because the cacao processing has so much lead and cadmium. Mm. Um, And most plant-based products are actually just full of lead, arsenic, and cadmium. They're basically, just assume they're bad, Right. right? And if you really wanted to check, you could check Clean Label Project. So your best bet is doing vanilla. Your best bet is doing egg protein. And your best bet is, you know, if you're going to do a whey, don't, don't do chocolate. And they just, Consumer Reports actually just did an, uh, an article on heavy metal contaminants in every, basically 70% of chocolates, including dark chocolates, including Hue and Lilies and all the ones that we rely on, they all are contaminated with lead and cadmium, all of them. And cadmium is linked, it's causal for atherosclerosis. We know that it increases, you know, one, I should say, in animal models, causal for atherosclerosis, two, in humans, highly associated with an increased CAC. So be careful about cadmium. Yeah, no, I, I saw some of the, the articles about the chocolate. I, I just didn't think about the protein powders too. So that's pretty scary. Are there other markers that you um, test for, look out for specifically? I, I Obviously, we will look at glucose, insulin, CRP, but are there other markers that you find are more nuanced uh, when people are eating low carb or a carnivore diet? I mean, we, so we test, like we, we have such an expansive test. So tell me what metric you're looking for and I'll tell you what I'll order or what I'll consider ordering. Sure. Well, let's, let's talk about cholesterol. So a lot of carnivores, we hear that cholesterol goes high LDL, quote unquote, the bad cholesterol or total cholesterol. And it does go up. Is that a concern in the grand scheme of things with heart health? I think it's tough, right? It's a, it's a very, very difficult question. The true answer is I don't know, and I'm not sure anybody knows, right? So uh, the best I can do is present the data that we do know, right? And the best I can do is be a good doctor. So I think that it's it's a complicated discussion. If you look at all-cause mortality for LDL, the lowest mortality associated with the lowest LDL associated with the sorry, the LDL associated with the least mortality is about 140. It's not 300. It's not zero, as cardiologists say. So it's 140. So that's the LDL associated with lowest mortality. Do I know, you know, exactly what's going on? Yeah, we have an idea. You know, the higher your LDL goes, the more cardiac disease we see, the lower your LDL goes, the more respiratory disease and cancer. And, you know, you have some other issues that happen, you know, uh, with the lower LDL. So that seems to be, you know, that it's like saying, well, what temperature do you want to be? Well, you kind of want to be like 98, 99, you know, do I want to have 105 fever? Not really, you know, uh, maybe if I have an infection, but, you know, I don't want it for that long, you know? Sure. So I think the idea is, is um, in terms of its causality, you know, I, I really don't know. You know, I think that there's genetic studies that show a linear relationship between cardiovascular disease. But there are certainly other elements, you know, there's more to life than cardiovascular disease. Well, there's even an argument to be made that cardiovascular disease is so well treated, does it even matter? But I think bottom line is my review of the data, you know, the, that certainly metabolic. So the question becomes is, 
when you take out obesity and you take out metabolic syndrome and you take out hypertension, right? And you take out diabetes, what do you want your LDL to be? Right. And the best answer I have is probably around 140, right? That's the best answer I have, right? And there's maybe some evidence you could even say, you know, 100 to 140, and this is LDLC. Do I feel strongly about it? No. Well, now what do you do when your LDL is aberrant, right? Let's say you have, I mean, we published in our clinic, you know, LDLs of people who had LDLs of 600 plus, 700 right. plus. Right. And we worked with Dave and uh, Dave Feldman and, and David Ludwig and, and Nick Norwitz and Adrian Sotomoda, you know, to figure out, well, what are the, who are the people who are having increases in LDL and what, you know, is it reversible and what does it mean? What does it do? And, you know, we, we sh- showed basically that your leanness will predict how high your LDL goes. And we showed that your baseline kind of HDL and your metabolic health will will predict how high your LDL will go. So the more lean and the more, uh, meaning like body fat percentage and BMI, the more lean you are and the higher your baseline HDL and LDL, more high it's going to go. Can it be reversed? Yeah, it can be reversed. You know, uh, it can be reversed and it takes some modest carbohydrates to reverse that. Right. Now it's heterogeneous. There's some people who are hyperabsorbers of cholesterol and those people could take a psyllium husk if they want to lower it. You know, they could take like high dose psyllium husk and I've seen people lower their LDL by time. Those are rare. Those people are rare. Most people are uh, just circulating more LDL. And if you present the liver with some carbohydrates, they don't circulate as much. Now, I think if, if you get to like what we should do about it, you know, that's, that's individual. Um, I think you look at family history, you look at, you screen them for cardiac disease, you risk stratify them. So if I have somebody with like, you know, a, a zero, you know, if they're 60 years old with a calcium score of zero and they have had 10 years of high LDL of, I don't know, 200, and they're asking me what to do. I'm like, well, your body's very clear, you're fine, and you're low risk. Like, you know, like uh, the guidelines say over 190, give a statin. What do you want right. to do? You know, your risk is less than 5%. You know, what do you want to do? So I think, um, I think it's tough. We don't have the answers. Uh, so, you know, I think you just take it individually. That's all we can do right now. I don't think anybody could do any better than give individual advice. A lot of the carnivores, when they eat a carnivore diet, they'll see their insulin go below five, their blood sugar gets in the 80s, 90s milligrams per deciliter, their A1C looks good, C peptide looks good. And their cholesterol sort of follows the what you said. So a lot of them will get leaner, their LDL will possibly sometimes be above 200, 300, like you said, maybe even up to 600 if they're lean mass hyper responders. Their triglycerides are 60s, 70s, 80s, um, whereas the standard considers 150 to be normal. And then their HDL is anywhere between 60s to 85, maybe a little bit above that. And so that's where a lot of the carnivores start worrying. My primary care doctor says I need to get on a statin now because my LDL and total is so high. But in the scenario, it seems well, all your inflammatory markers, your hypertension is gone, your blood glucose is normalized, you're not on any meds. So is that really a concern? And I think your answer is we don't know, and it should be very individualized. 
I think well, I'll tell you what would make me pull the trigger. So let's say you get that person and they have a very high CAC. They have a strong family history of family of heart disease. And, you know, for whatever reason, their trigs are not below 100, which we've okay. seen time and again. The small LDLPs, 1,000 plus. Then I think you think about it a little bit differently. What do you do? How do you help this person? When you take somebody and you take like you or me, who maybe our risk is under 5%, the benefit to anything, baby aspirin, statin, whatever, managing blood pressure, it's very low. Like if you or I were to acutely get diabetes, even managing that in the first year, it's not going to have a huge impact on our life, right? So the thing is, is that when you go to a high risk, I think the risk reward ratio, like those are the people that benefit. Now, pharma wants me to think that I should just take everybody Right. And like pharma wants us to give a hundred people a medication that one person will benefit from. Right. That's their, that's the way that they design trials. They want to reach the widest audience. Right. So you have to like work back. Like you can take any recent example of any new therapy and understand that they want to give it to everybody, even though there's definitely somebody who's not going to benefit and definitely somebody you know, or possibly somebody who's much more likely to benefit. And so when it comes to statins, that's the case. And a good doctor will try to like figure out who is the person that will benefit from this and who's the most likely to get harmed. Well, who's most likely to get harmed? People who are, uh, you know, typically women, right? They're more, much more likely to see A1C go up. People who have a genetic uh, a myopathy associated with statins, which is very common, Liver injury does happen. And then even it comes down to the choice of statins. There's statins that don't cross into the brain versus statins that do cross into the brain. So like, you know, it, there's a lot to to explore, right? There's a lot to talk about. And ultimately, what are the person's values in front of you? You know, like if somebody's like, I want to come off meds, I really don't want to do meds. And a 1% risk reduction in 10 years, like a 0.1% risk reduction per year is not something I'm interested in. Right. I mean, it's simple. Sure. Right. So if you have a 20% risk, which would be a really, you know, unhealthy person, no metal, you know, full of metabolic syndrome, diabetes, smoker, right. Their risk reduction with a statin is maybe 1% per year. Maybe if it's like, okay, I'm going to go from a 99, you know, 1% or 2% chance of dying to 1%, you know, this year, would you do it? I'd, probably, I'd, I'd consider it a 1% chance of not dying in a year. I'll take that. What did it take to get that? Did I get a bunch of muscle aches? Did I get my liver enzymes elevated? Did I get my A1C through the roof? And, you know, do I already have mitochondrial impairment? I don't want any extra, right? So I think it's just, um, you know, it's tough. Like I think people have a hard time navigating that nuance. It's like, no, I'm never going to take a statin. Well, you know, like I'm not... I'm the guy who, who literally publishes taking people off drugs and keeping them off drugs. But there's a person I can imagine who I would say, here, maybe you should consider this medication. Right. We don't have any apprehension with antibiotics. The thing is, is does it benefit you? Let's think it through. And that's the kind of medicine I want to do. Who is the person in front of me? What is their risk? What is their benefit? And, and what are their values? That's the kind of people, patients that I want to come to, the people who want that. Yeah. Um, and that, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. It's 
the nuance that it's treating the person in front of you rather than, okay, you have this type of test number and therefore this is what I'm told to do. And so I think that makes sense. I mean, generally speaking, I'm not for liver supplements, but there are some people that maybe I'll see it's not their folate, but sometimes I see their copper is really, really low. And so copper is really high in beef liver. And so that's one of the most bioavailable if they're not going to eat oysters, for example. So in that scenario, I may recommend it for just a short bit, you know, but so, but generally speaking, most people would think I'm not for liver. So I I completely understand that nuance. And I think that's really individualized care. And that is the ideal that I think we are all striving for. So it makes, it makes a lot of sense. You know, you, you work with all types of patients and there's always, I mean, the fact that you're publishing a paper with Feldman and you're so close to new research, I can imagine it being so difficult to say, this is the approach for your patient. How do you marry just real life, new research? Like what helps people really adhere to something to finally start healing? Everybody wants it. I think the first thing is knowing that everybody wants it. I haven't met one person with diabetes like, yeah, I want this. You know, like I haven't met one person with obesity in my clinic, at least. So people coming to me, right, who said, yeah, I want to be this way. Like most people don't want it. So if you just understand that, like most people want to do it, they just need to figure out how. Right. Then it's then you change the way you care for people. Most I haven't met one person that didn't want I haven't met one person with alcoholism that didn't want to change. I just haven't met those people. Maybe those people are out there. They're maybe they're in denial. I just haven't happened to meet any of them. You know, maybe given my profession, I don't know. I'm not in the worst areas of the world with the people at their lowest points. But it could just be I'm, I'm I'm someone entitled. I don't know. But I haven't met one person that wanted disease. Right. So once you make that leap, then it's like to be effective at what I do, I have to figure out a way to do that. And it's kind of like, uh, I'm trying to find out a neutral, you know, it's kind of like Tesla, you know, they sat there and said, most people probably don't want to emit carbon monoxide and carbon dioxide from their cars. Sure. Right. So they developed a system and it's hard to develop new systems. Right. So the way I view it is we're developing new systems and we have a lot of cool stuff. We have a Stanford project we're working on right now with the Stanford IRB. We have, you know, a project we're working with Hopefully we'll get off the ground with Harvard. We have, you know, imagine we have real-time data flowing in, you know, CGMs, ketone meters, scales, cuffs, you know, labs, right? Labs probably in the order that have not been done anywhere else, right? So how do we make use of this data? How do we learn from it and put it back into the literature so that other doctors can be informed? These are the kind of stuff we're working on now. We have a team of doctors, as I said, you know, we hired a doctor, we're hiring another doctor, you know, we're, we're trying to take the next steps. Like we're trying to, you know, it can't just be a ragtag group of doctors that are like low carb ish or whatever. Some are, you know, someone this camp, paleo, keto, like, no, we need a home. And that's the society of metabolic health practitioners. That's the home, right? We have a medical group that, and we have a group for dietitians, for nutritionists, for health coaches and personal trainers, where you can get metabolic health certification. We have a nationwide practice that does, you know, uh, that focuses on diabetes, obesity, and metabolic care, right? And there's others coming, you know, uh, there's Verda, there's Rivero. I mean, 
the idea here is, is we have to improve the entire profession. We have to put the patient first. Right. No, I love that. As inflation is you know, near and we see even eggs go up in costs, how do you support your patients and recommend, I guess, different foods and make it still affordable for them? Yeah, we have a whole actual thing. So we're going to have actually lectures by Brian Wiley, one of our health coaches, mm-hmm every two months um, on making keto affordable and sustainable. Uh, most fast food places have hamburger patties between one to $2, grilled chicken patties, you know, 150 to 250. So you can, you can get quick meals, snap, they're, they're snap certified. So okay. uh, you can use your snap benefits there. If you have them snap, well, you guys do. So snap is the food it stamp. Is- it yeah, is, yeah. it's worldwide or not worldwide, it's in the nationwide. US. Yes, yeah, nationwide. Yeah, yeah. So uh, then there's, you know, learning how and where to shop, how to shop sales, mm-hmm. how to, and then like learning how to cook cheap cuts, like, you know, take a roast and throw it in the slow cooker, you know, right. for a bunch of hours, uh, you know, go for the organ meats and nobody goes for if that suits, learn to shop sales, you know, get friends with your butcher. I'm, I kid you not, I'm like, I'm looking into getting chickens. <laughs> so, you know, like me and my wife are like, how hard is it to put a chicken coop, you know, up and the kids are all excited about it. So I think it just navigating all that is is certainly hard, but there's there's ways to do it. Manager specials at like supermarkets, they'll sometimes right. discount meats by up to half. Bulk discounts, you know, sometimes be a little bit better. It's tough. It's not easy. You're either going to pay for medications or you're going to pay for... I think our whole society is out to make meat more expensive, to be honest with you. I don't want to get into that, but uh, I think there's a lot of high-level thinkers who are coming up with ways to make meat more expensive. Oh, absolutely. And so I, I think it's going to be, it's not easy and, I, and certainly inflation has not made it easier. Right. And the other thing is you can freeze a lot of meats and like you said, get different uh, cheaper cuts and stuff. So there are ways. And if you're just eating meat or eating mostly meat, it becomes cheaper because you're not buying all the snacks and all the other drinks and all the seasonings and other things that are required to make these more lavish meals. So, and if, like you said, if you're not paying for, you know, like allergy medications or other medications that are causing issues because of your current diet, then all of those are also cost saving. So it's just looking at it as if you take care of your health today, you'll have less bills later on, or even in the interim with it, like over the counter medications. We've talked about obesity, we've talked about food addiction. So a lot of the mind body and what's ideal, are there any tips that you'd like to to leave with the people that are watching that you have just seen in your patients that have really helped them move the needle in healing, healing in either diabetes or obesity or even uh, food addiction? If you've done a bunch of diets and it hasn't worked and you've been off the wagon a lot and you just can't do it and you go off and stay off for weeks and weeks, if this is you, right? If this is you and you have intense shame and guilt, you have you know, get annoyed when people tell you about what you're eating. And if you get agitated when your my wife tells me not to eat X, Y, and Z, when that happens, right, it usually means that psychology, emotions, you know, and behavior need to be addressed. And it's not a nutritional issue that you're after. You know, you should know that, hey, I need a behavioral approach, accountability, coaching, and maybe counseling, psychotherapy, or all of the above. So I think my best advice is figure out if nutrition is what you need, if nutrition is what you need, just quit the junk, eat a bunch of meat, eggs, fish, green yogurt, green leafy vegetables, and low-carb fruit, and you know maybe consider an elimination diet if that doesn't help you. 
If you have those issues that I mentioned, then seek out help. You're not going to be a great self-judge. The shame and the guilt are paralyzing and you're going to need to reach out. Sure. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. Where can people, I know you have a really successful podcast, but if you can talk about your podcast, where people can work with you, your online telemedicine. We have the Low Carb MD podcasts, been around for four years now, uh, 250 episodes or something like that. We have an app. Okay. If you're looking for a community, we have, I think it's like 5,000 members right now that are just focused. We also have a get help now, like board which is powered by volunteers who have helped keep weight off and are just there to focus on, you know, diabetes, food addiction, maintaining a lifestyle, right? They're volunteered. You know, this is an app with uh, asynchronous just videos, articles, fully cited. So you are empowered, whether you go to your own doctor or you come to us. We also have a full suite of, I would say we're like remote concierge care. Um, if you're looking for basically, a, you know, the best in, I, I don't want to say the best, but if you're looking for like concierge level metabolic care, right? This is exactly what we do. We do real-time monitoring. We do metabolic health. Every single person in our practice is, you know, certified to the SMHP. So yeah, drtro.com, you know, held out D-O-C-T-O-R-T-R-O.com. And the app is the Dr. Tro app. And so people can download the app and and then they can get that learning and all of the community care. Okay. And it's separate from actually being your patient. Yeah. I mean, the app is an app and the patients get access to the app, but uh, it's just a community uh, and education focused on understanding medicine and weight loss. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Um, I, I really appreciate your vulnerability. Uh, when I went to low carb Boca, I, f- I felt like a, I met a lot of practitioners that were willing to just share their journey with food, with their struggles of the, knowing what the best diet is and trying to stay consistent. And I love that because online, you miss a lot of that, the realness, the vulnerability. And that's where these stories really help people stay motivated of, okay, I don't need to be perfect to heal. I just need to have more win days than days that I'm struggling. And I think that message is so powerful. So, you know, for everything you do and share, thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Okay, guys, I hope that this conversation helped bring you closer to root cause healing. What I really enjoyed about this conversation with Dr. Tro is that he really cares for the individual. There is no one answer for what will fix everyone. And as he talks about it, yes, you can find the perfect nutrition. And for him, eating a low carb diet helped him to feel satiated, which then would cause him to binge less. But if no diet is letting you stick to consistency, or you're always falling off the rails, or is causing you those emotions that Dr. Tro had talked about, you may want to consider working on your relationship with food. I know that's not the easiest thing to work on. And trust me, I've gone through my share of therapy and such but it can be so healing and freeing in the long term. Lastly, if you are taking desiccated organ supplements because you think it will support your folate, I highly recommend checking your folate after three months of supplementation, as well as your homocysteine levels. Like Dr. Tro said, you may just need a folate supplement, or you may want to take methylated Bs. Either way, just make sure that you test and not just believe every marketing ploy. Okay, guys, make sure to eat a lot of meat. Take care of your bodies because it is the only place you have to live. I will talk to you later. Bye, guys.
Thanks for listening to the Nutrition with Judy podcast. If you liked what you heard today, please make sure to leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast app so more listeners like you can find the show. If you want more practitioner care and support, head over to nutritionwithjudy.com slash groups so you can get more real talk about carnivore, the environment, and root cause healing. You can also find my content on Nutrition with Judy's YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Make sure to sign up for my weekly newsletter and learn more about in-depth articles with infographics at nutritionwithjudy.com slash articles. You can find my two books, Carnivore Cure and the Complete Carnivore Diet for Beginners on carnivorecure.com and amazon.com. At the heart of Nutrition with Judy's practice, our mission lies with a deep, unwavering passion for service and community. We will continue to empower you to have the knowledge and tools to live a life nearly symptom-free because we firmly believe in healing and wellness for all.